Rich, it's good to be back uh, with you guys. Sunday morning, it's always a thrill to gather together. And uh, like Rich said, we are continuing in our study on growing up. So if you're new today, we have been in a series now around uh, this growth process. Uh, We're actually in week four of this series about how we grow as Christians about how God matures us into the image of His Son, Jesus. And it has been a, uh, it's been a sweet study so far. And if you're here and you're new, I uh, just want to kind of out, of, out of the gate, just tell you, there is hope. If you're a believer, there is hope, there is power uh, for change. Uh, no matter what you're enslaved to, the Lord, His desire is to liberate you. And grow you into the image of Christ. And we saw that in the first week. We tried to get our minds around this concept that the Bible describes as maturity. We learned that God wants each and every one of us to grow up to maturity. So that was week one. This goal of being like Jesus, is, is, that's His goal for our lives. He's working everything to that end. He saved us so that we would slowly start to resemble His Son more and more. We would slowly start to mimic Him over time until one day we each will stand before Him perfect and complete in Christ. That's God's goal. That's what He's at work to accomplish. And we learned that to be mature in this life, though, it does not mean that we are absolutely perfect, like we will be on that final day. To be mature involves a pattern, a pattern of thinking, a pattern of desiring, pattern of acting like Jesus. Okay, It's not perfection, it's a pattern. A pattern of thinking, acting, and desiring like Christ. So if that's what maturity is, and that was week one, and if God wants us to become mature, how do we get there? What's the path? What do we need in order to grow? Well, the really good news is that God is so committed to our growth that He's given us everything we need to make it a reality. Everything we need. So starting back in week two, we looked at what I was describing as the means of maturity. The means that God's provided to us to help us grow. And it's multifaceted, but they all work together for our growth. So what was the first means? Does anybody remember? First one we talked about. The Spirit. Yes, the Spirit. That was lesson number two. The Spirit of God is the greatest gift imaginable to humans. He is the greatest power and the greatest hope we have for transformation. So the Israel's prophets looked forward to that God would pour His Spirit out on His people. And that Spirit would write the law in His people's hearts, teaching them to become obedient to God in a lasting way. We need His Spirit because by ourselves we are dead and blind and powerless when it comes to change. All humans. Dead, blind, powerless. We saw that week number two. But with the gift of God's Spirit, He makes us alive. He energizes us to repent of sin and to produce fruit over time. But we saw in the next week that the Spirit doesn't work in a vacuum. He doesn't just sort of zap us with spiritual growth. What does he use to change us? He has a sword, and it is 
The truth. The truth. The Spirit uses the Word of God, the truth, to convict us of sin, to discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, thoughts and intentions that we don't even know. The Word of God knows. God knows, and He he uses His Word to discern those to us. He uses His Word to renew our minds, like Rich was talking about, to teach us to obey. And that's because His Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It makes the simple wise. It leads to a stable, productive, and satisfying life. But that leads to another question. Where can we find the Spirit working through the truth? Where is the truth made visible? And where is the power of God's Spirit put on display? Well, it's in and through the church. And that's our third means. As we're going to see today, God has designed the church as the place, the place where this transformation happens. It's the place where His transforming Spirit resides, and it's the place that promotes and defends the truth. So it makes sense then that the church is the place God has designed in His wisdom to transform His people. So what I want to do this morning is to explore this topic as a church. I want to explore how the Lord has designed it for our transformation, and I want to do that under three headings. Okay, First, I want to help you see from Scripture how the church is connected to the other two means of growth. How it's connected to, the, to God's Spirit and to the truth. The scriptures are very clear to connect these together, and I want to show you that. Next, we'll look at some ways we're tempted to view the church wrongly when it comes to growth, like ways we're tempted to kind of get off track when we think about the church. And then finally, we'll look at some ways, just briefly, how the Lord uses the church to grow us as His means. All right, so first, let's check out some connections between this church the Spirit, and the truth. So I'm linking all these means together. Let's look at some of these connections. All right, disclaimer, as we get going here in this part, there's not a lot of subpoints. So if you, if you get lost in the... I'm going to throw some references at you. If you get lost in some of these references, just email me. I'll send you this manuscript, which I did not lose. That one was gone from last week. Ne'er to be recovered, all right? So, some connections. Let's start. Connections between the church and the Spirit. From the earliest of times, God's Spirit has always resided in God's place. He's described as hovering over God's creation in Genesis 1. And it becomes apparent as the narrative ensues that God was clearly with His people in the garden, in the garden temple of Eden. But we know sin separated us from His presence and from entering back into this dwelling with God. But God was committed to overcoming this separation. So, later in the narrative, He comes and dwells again with His people in the tabernacle. In Exodus 40, it's described as the Spirit, or the God is described as filling the tabernacle with His glory. 
in Exodus 40, after it was constructed, symbolizing his presence was dwelling with his people. It was mitigated, right? A mitigated form of his presence, but he was there. Then years later, the tent gave way to a building, the temple in Jerusalem. And God again filled it with his presence. 1 Kings 8, in almost identical language, as to how he filled the tabernacle years before. But because of Israel's persistent sin, God abandoned his temple. His glory literally departed from the temple in the city of Jerusalem in Ezekiel 11. And that abandonment led to the destruction of the city and the temple. It led to the exile of the people, similar to what happened to Adam and Eve from their exile from the garden. The next time God's Spirit makes a visible descent back to Canaan is when He descends on Jesus in His baptism in Luke 3. Jesus claims to be the true temple, and He says in John 2 that after that temple is destroyed, it will be rebuilt in the resurrection. And at his death, the temple veil is torn in two, indicating that the way back to God, the way back to the Holy of Holies, has been opened by the death of Jesus. Luke chapter 23. Hebrews 10 also explores that idea. So the next time the Spirit descends is not on Israel's physical temple, but it is on the Jewish believers at Pentecost. Similar to the tabernacle and the temple, the Spirit fills, Luke says, the entire house as He comes to indwell these believers in Acts chapter 2, verse 2. And as the Gospel spreads in Acts, churches are planted and the Spirit resides there. He transforms the people and He is very active in their midst. He's active in changing them. He's active in selecting leaders and appointing those leaders and sending those leaders out. The Spirit is very active in the church. So, mapping these connections out, this explains why Paul calls the church God's temple. Because the prophets predicted a day when God would rebuild His temple and it would involve people. The Spirit resides uniquely among us, uniquely among the church, when the church gathers. Look with me in Ephesians 2. Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place For God, by the Spirit. So for Paul, in Paul's mind, the corporate gathering of the church, even right here at TBC, today, in this local gathering, the Spirit is uniquely present. Like He was present in the tabernacle and temple before. 
So, the Spirit and the local church go together. And it only follows then that the church would be the place that God's truth would also be proclaimed and defended. So over in 1 Timothy 3, Paul describes the church in precisely these terms. In chapter 3, verse 15, he calls the church, the church of the living God, there at the the bottom there, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You might think, what, what is he saying there? What does that mean? A pillar and a buttress of the truth. Well, he's speaking in a metaphor. The church is like a pillar for the truth, meaning it holds it up like a pillar would hold up a structure. It holds up the truth. And the idea is it's, it's holding it up kind of for the world to see that the truth is then proclaimed by the church. It's the, it's the place that the church is propping up the truth. It's holding it forth. So it's a pillar for the truth, but notice it's also a buttress, he says. Now, a better translation for this would probably be something like a rampart. Now, I know most of you are not like military people, so what, what is that? What does that mean? It's a defensive wall. Okay, A rampart is a defensive wall. So the church is not just to promote the truth, but it's also tasked with defending it from error, defending it from perversions. We've been given a deposit, we've been given the gospel, and we're called to guard it. Like a defensive wall. So the church is both a pillar and a rampart. A pillar and a wall for the truth. It holds it up and it defends it. That means it's the place, the church is the place on earth that the truth of God is found, where it ought to be. The local church ought to be the place the truth is found, lifted up, modeled, obeyed. It is the place that heralds the truth and the place that defends it from error. So we see really clearly that God's Spirit, the truth, and the church are all intertwined. And it should be, the church should be prioritized then and, and, and pursued when it comes to the, when we think about growth and how we change as individuals. We, don't, we shouldn't think of our change apart from the church. It should happen in and through the church. Yet, there are some wrong ways that, we, that we're tempted to think of the church. There's some ways that we get off track when it comes to our approach to church. You would think, as clear as the Bible is on this, the role of the local church, that that it would be central in our thinking. But it is very easy for for even Christians to get off track here. How so? I'll give you a few ways. Well, some are tempted to neglect the church. We get off track by neglecting the church. What do I mean by that? Well, some Christians are tempted to think that the place of real transformation, the place of real change, is somewhere outside of the church. It's somewhere like a therapist's office, maybe. And you'll be especially tempted toward this if you've experienced shallow help from the church. Right? If you've been involved in an unhealthy church. Sadly, many churches today don't actually counsel or shepherd their members. Or if they do, they just tell them to read their Bible and pray more. 
which reading your Bible and prayer, two, as we'll see, are two crucial aspects of growing. But there's a lot more to it. Or maybe for others, where you've really found help is not necessarily in the church, but it's in the dorm. It's from an RA or an RS or a group of friends on the hall. Your real friends and mentors, the ones that you know, the ones that are really walking with you, the people you really listen to, those people are found there. So the place of change, you think, must be at liberty. Others still might be tempted to think that it comes from the Internet. The place of change is on the Internet. You think, no, surely not. Surely we wouldn't think that, but we do. We think it comes from the kind of YouTube watchdogs, you know, kind of authenticate themselves with their channels, or the podcast pastors, shepherding everybody else's sheep, or social media influencers. Now, I'm not saying you can't be helped by any of those things I just mentioned. You certainly can be helped. There certainly can be useful things in everything I just mentioned. But according to Scripture, the fundamental place change happens is the local church. It's what God has designed for our growth. So we have to beware of neglecting the very means God has designed to help us to grow. But maybe you don't neglect the church. Maybe you say, I agree with you, Clay. Um, Church is good. But maybe you just minimize it. Maybe you minimize the significance of the church. Some may be tempted to think of the church as a good thing, but an extra thing. Almost as a bonus. You know, the cherry on top. If you're part of a good church, that's great. That's great. But it's not necessary. You're not in danger without one. When it comes to transformation, what really matters is your own personal Bible study. Your own individual walk with Jesus and what Jesus wants you to do with your life. If the church happens to be able to help you, then great. Now, as we're going to see, your own walk with Christ is crucial. There is a very, very individual element to this. We're going to talk about that in weeks to come. But the church isn't peripheral when it comes to your transformation. God's design, His design for it is to be absolutely central and necessary for your growth. And He designed you to be part of it, too, to advance its growth with your own gifts. So beware of minimizing the church in your heart and your mind. But some of you... You know, you may be sitting here barely able to hear anything I'm even saying about the church because you are severely tempted to resent the church. Your past experience with church may have left you jaded because of a terrible experience you've had. Maybe you grew up in an unhealthy church. Maybe your pastor was exposed in some secret sin and you're wondering if you can ever trust leadership again. Maybe there's a church split and the shrapnel hit your family. Maybe someone you trusted within the church betrayed you. Even good, healthy churches have sin. People sin against us. And we may be tempted to resent the church 
But if you're coming from an unhealthy church, the temptation is even greater. Okay, It's even greater to resent the church. So that's why we've got to know what a healthy church is and place ourselves in one that meets those biblical criteria. All right, so those are just some ways that we get off track when we think about the church. Some ways that we're tempted to respond wrongly to this teaching about the church because of our experience or maybe our own kind of personal views about things. So let's look, if you're not convinced yet, let's, let's take the time that we have left and look at the ways that the Lord grows us through the church. And again, we are only, I had to nix a bunch of stuff from this lesson because I, I wanted to keep it to one you know, 45-minute lesson. So we're only going to hit some highlights. There's a lot more we could talk about. So what are some of the ways that the Lord grows us through the church? What's he provided in the church? Well, leadership is probably one of the first things we need to talk about. Leadership, healthy leadership. <coughs> now, I've listed a lot of texts here, and I'm going to allude to them as I, as I go, so you can kind of listen along. One of the most fundamental ways the Lord uses a church to change us is through its leaders. Through its leaders. According to Ephesians 4.12, that first text I have on your screen there, that text teaches us that the Lord himself has raised up faithful leaders to equip you to be useful. This is not on the screen, but in Acts 20, the Holy Spirit is actually described as appointing the elders of the Ephesian church. So according to God, you need faithful leaders. Because he put them there. He's raised them up, and he's gifted these people to equip you to be useful in your life. So a lot rides or falls on the health of the leaders, which is why we must make sure that the leaders of the churches are qualified before we install them. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 give some very, very clear qualifications. Qualifications that most of evangelicalism ignores before they appoint a man to the position. And then we wonder why the churches go off track. So Paul knew the price tag of leadership. Listen to what he told his protege, Timothy. He says in 1 Timothy 4, 6, he says this, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. So keep on watching yourself. Keep on watching the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Whoa. Watch yourself. Watch your life, Paul's saying. Watch what you're teaching. Because if you stay faithful, you're going to rescue yourself, you're going to rescue these people. Paul knew that leaders must make sure they're always pursuing faithfulness in life and doctrine, in how they live in secret, and in what they teach in public. Why? Because salvation, in a, on, from a human standpoint, salvation depends on it. People can be led astray by unfaithful leaders. And that's a sobering thought. But equally encouraging is what can happen through good leadership. 
through leaders who meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. A church with faithful leaders, humble men who love Christ, this kind of church will experience tremendous transformation. How so? Well, these leaders will work hard in the Word of God to make it clear so that you can know what God's actually said, how it applies to your life. They'll make themselves available to you to try to answer your questions and point you in the right direction. They'll open their lives and their homes to you, and you'll be able to watch how they interact with their own family, with others, how they repent of sin. They'll intercede for you by name. They'll counsel you through difficult issues. As they make decisions, they'll depend on the Lord and His Word for wisdom. They won't do what seems right in their own eyes. And you will be benefited spiritually by their decisions. Because they make most of them in the church. They'll care about Christ's interests over their own personal interests. And they will be willing to lay their lives down for the good of the sheep. Now I've just detailed out for you what faithful shepherding is. So when Peter tells the elders to, quote, shepherd the flock of God in 1 Peter 5, those are the kinds of things that Peter and the rest of the men had in mind. And finally, did you know that the Bible actually commands you to obey healthy leadership? It's a command. It says if you do, it will lead to your transformation. Listen to Hebrews 13, 17. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Is that okay? Now listen to the next part. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. So what's he saying here? He's saying, saying it in the negative. Essentially, if you make the leader's job a pain by being a difficult sheep, by being unsubmissive, not trusting their wisdom and counsel, not heeding it, doing your own thing because you think you know better, if you become a difficult sheep, that won't be very advantageous for you, he's saying. But you could say it positively. If you obey and submit to these faithful leaders as they teach you the Word of God, that will be a great advantage to you spiritually. In other words, God intends every Christian to be accountable to specific leaders, and He promises to use those leaders to help transform you. Now, this isn't something I'm just saying. This is something I'm living and have experienced growing up, you know, growing up spiritually in this church, you know, over the last 10 years, becoming a pastor here, I have submitted myself to the counsel of these men. Even when I was going to do something different. I thought about doing something different. And I have seen the Lord again and again bless those decisions to submit in faith to the leaders of the congregation that knew much better than I did. Could see further out than me. And God has promised to use faithful leaders to to help you grow, to help transform you. And one of those tasks that leaders do in particular, and that that leads to this growth, is that they teach us God's Word. So I'm going to actually just draw that one out for us as a a second way that we grow, that God uses this church to change us. 
And it happens through the public ministry of the Word of God. Through preaching. It's the one I've highlighted here. You could also throw in there the public reading of Scripture. The singing of Scripture in song. And like we saw in the past uh, few weeks, human beings desperately need truth to come to us from the outside. We need truth to come from us from God in His Word, and God has designed His truth to come to us in the context of the public reading and preaching and singing of His Word on Sundays. In our context, on Thursdays. Now, we live in an incredible period of church history where every single one of us has access to the Word of God in our own language and in multiple translations, virtually for free, on the Internet. God has been so unbelievably kind to us that we live in these days with so much direct access to His words in our native tongue that people like the saints of old, like William Tyndale, died to make a reality for us. But do you realize that for most of church history, the normal member of a congregation did not have much access to the written word of God apart from Sunday? It's a wild thought. And yet, God sustained his church. How? Through the corporate reading, the corporate teaching, the corporate singing of his word. And it shows us the premium God puts on the proclamation of his word in the midst of the ecclesia, in the midst of the congregation. This is why again and again Paul exhorted Timothy toward a vibrant teaching ministry to be completely devoted to teaching. In his first letter to Timothy, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. 1 Timothy 4.13 And again, in his second letter, at the end of his life, he says, kind of the climax of the letter, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Whether people like it or they don't, it's popular or not, preach it consistently. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. I mean, this is the resounding clarion call from Paul to Timothy in his final days. Give yourself, devote yourself to proclamation. Because when the scriptures are taught clearly in a church, so many transformative things happen. We understand more of God and His ways, and the lies we once believed are exposed so that we can turn away from them. Sin that we were once ignorant about or even excused is brought into the light, and we're motivated to turn away from sin for our good. Promises we never knew about are revealed to us, our faith is strengthened. And those are just a, a just smattering of some of the direct benefits of good teaching. But there's also some indirect benefits, too. Good teaching models good Bible study. When you sit under good teaching, you learn how to read and study your Bible better over time. And you'll grow not just in studying it, kind of in cerebral, but also applying it. Because good preaching doesn't stop at just teaching you stuff. It, it helps you apply it to your daily life. It shows us how the truth makes a difference in everyday life. So when it comes to the public teaching of God's Word in church, do you view it as an additive? As something supplemental to the meal that you're going to feed yourself? 
Or do you view it as the meal itself? Do you ever reflect on what was taught from Sunday to Sunday? Do you ever seek how you can apply what was taught on Sundays and Thursdays? Here's another practical thought. A number of you asked me what I recommend for personal Bible study and how to do it. That's a question I get a lot of the time. What should I do? How should I? It's good resources for studying my Bible. What would you recommend? What kind of Bible study? Those are great questions. But one of the things I often suggest, this is not a command, what I suggest is to dovetail your own study with something that the church is doing. So, since we're studying Romans on Sunday mornings with Pastor Brian and Philippians on Thursday, you could pick one of those two messages, one of those two series, and study out the passage that's being preached the next time that we're together. That will raise questions for you ahead of time. And more of the message will stick because you're ready for it. You've been thinking about these truths. And then if, if one of us, Pastor Brian or me, we don't answer your questions in the sermon, guess what? You've got a real live pastor you can come talk to about your questions in that study. Again, you don't have to do this. You don't have to, to dovetail your personal study this way, but it's at least a good option. So, God grows us through the public preaching of His Word, but that's not all. He also grows us through the ordinances. And by ordinances, I'm referring to the two ordinances Christ gave to His church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These two symbols were given to us for our good, for our growth, we could say. So let's look at what each one is and how it works to change us. All right, baptism. Based on the pattern that we see in Acts, what does baptism do? Baptism marks out our entrance into the covenant community. Acts 2.41. It is a public proclamation that you are now a disciple. It's what marks you off from the world and associates you visibly, visibly with Christ and His church. And in many cultures, it's at this point when a family may disown you. When persecution may hit you, it's at the baptism. Because what are you doing? You're publicly identifying with Jesus. And according to Romans 6, baptism symbolizes some things. It symbolizes being united to Christ. It symbolizes we've been united with Him in His death as we go under the water. And then in His resurrection with Him as we come out of the water. It symbolizes that the cleansing has already taken place in our hearts. And it symbolizes this new power we have to live a life of obedience. Romans 6 goes through all of those different aspects. Baptism then is a big deal, and it helps the one that's being baptized to grow. It helps them to confront their fear of man as they publicly associate with their Savior. But it's also an encouragement to everyone else, too. Everyone who's witnessing the baptism. It reminds us that God's still saving people. It stimulates us to more evangelism as we hear how the Lord used others to draw them to Christ. It causes us to give thanks to God for redeeming that soul. And it reminds us of our own conversion, how we've identified with Christ and how we've received all His benefits too. Baptismal services are a joy, aren't they? A joy, a a transforming experience. And so is communion. So is communion. 
So what, what is communion, all right? Communion, or the Lord's Supper, is the second ordinance of the church. And you can think of communion as a transformed Passover. All right? A transformed Passover. It's a Passover that was transformed by Christ. That's essentially what he did in Luke 22. He took the final Passover meal with his disciples, and then he said, this applies to me. And he transcends the old Passover, the old covenant, with the the installation of the new. And in this new meal, Jesus focused on the bread as symbolic of his body and the wine as symbolic of his blood. And he told us specifically to continue to, to perform this meal, keep observing it, do it often, in remembrance of Jesus. So what does that mean? To remember Jesus. Well, kind of think about it in two ways, okay? When we eat and drink at his table then, he's reminding us that his death is sufficient for our entrance into the new covenant. He's reminding us that our relationship with God is based on what he's done. It's not on our own merit. It's a way to remind us of the gospel so that we do not forget that He loves us so that we do not forget that He is going to come back for us and eat with us in the kingdom again. So we remember. Remember Christ and what He's done. It's a subtle reminder of His love, but it also functions as a reminder of something else. When the Bible uses remembrance language, the idea of remembering things, it often has the idea of remembering covenant promises. So to remember Christ means we don't forget what He's done for us, yes, but it also means we seek to be faithful covenant partners that we don't forget our covenant relationship with Him. And in particular, what our Lord wants from us is to bend out the love that we have received. To love others how He has loved us. And that's part of the reason we take communion corporately together. We take it with everyone else in the church. Because we're all feasting from the same Christ. It's one cup in Luke 22. And He says, divide this cup amongst yourselves. So as we all eat from the same table, as we drink from the same cup, metaphorically speaking... We're reminded that Christ has called us to love each other, to pursue unity, to forgive when we are offended. Communion is kind of like a catch-all, right? It's a catch-all. When it, when it comes around and we think about our relationships in the church, or it ought to be. If we've got something against another believer, we've got to reconcile. We've got to make it right. It's hypocritical to benefit from Christ's forgiveness and yet refuse to forgive at the same time. So the Lord's Supper is a dual remembrance of sorts. We're reminded of Christ's love, and we're also reminded to bend that love out to others. And Christ wants us to keep keep the Supper because He knows how transformative the Supper is. And just one basic observation here is that we do these on Sunday nights, about once a month. And we have baptismal services also on Sunday nights. Which means if you don't come to Sunday night you are cutting yourself off from a means of God's growing you in these services. 
If you don't come, you're cutting yourself off from transformative opportunities. And it's not just like you're cutting yourself off, as bad as it is, it's detrimental for you. You're actually in disobedience to Christ. Because he's commanded that we take the supper for our good. He's commanded that we participate in these baptismal services for the encouragement and growth of the body. And so God uses these ordinances of baptism and communion to grow us. All right, we've got to move quick here. God also uses relationships in the church. God has designed the church not just to be a preaching event, even though there's a lot of teaching that happens in the corporate gathering. Preaching is important, but it's one slice of the transformation pie. When you come into the body, you gain access not just to pastors, but to the rest of the saints, to the rich diversity within the congregation. And all of this is intended for your good, even the not-so-pleasant experiences, even those weird people that say weird things to you, you know, when you come to church. All of this is given to us by God to, to change us. So let's think about how this works, okay? Again, just skimming off the top. We have examples, generally, in the people of the church. So when you join a church, you get an instant access to a bunch of people that you can learn from, even in just informally. They don't have to be your formal discipler. You get a ton of examples. Examples of people navigating the same stage of life with you, as you, like here in Boundless. You get to look around and see these other faithful believers who are trying to navigate these decisions. You get examples of people out ahead of you who have marriages and families. And you get examples of people who are way out ahead of you as they're facing old age and death. You get to watch these folks. You get to learn from them. You get to ask them questions. And in my Christian life, I've watched so many men at a distance who have no idea I'm watching. Might sound a little weird, but hey. I've learned so much from just observing their example in different areas of life. And for some of those men, I've done more than just watch them. I've gone up and asked them for wisdom about a particular scenario or how they developed a particular habit that I admire in them. So many of us have learned to be hospitable by just watching and experiencing the Browns' hospitality, haven't we? So linger after the services. Take the initiative to get to know people that aren't in your normal sphere of life. Introduce yourself. Pick their brain. Just open up your eyes and observe. You'll be amazed what you can learn. All right? Then there's counseling that happens in the church. The church relationships also exist for the close range, for helping you as an individual to grow in your relationship with Christ. The scriptures are very transparent that when you're young in the faith, like most of you are, you're going to have struggles. You're going to get caught in sin, and you're going to not know how to get out of it. You're going to struggle to make wise decisions. And that means you're going to need someone who is spiritual, someone who is more mature than you, to help restore you. Galatians 6.1 So this involves this other believer coming alongside you, walking with you for a season, helping equip you in how to battle a specific sin that you're dealing with, maybe a discouraging circumstance. It's really anything that you're kind of caught in and you don't know how to get out of. And one of the things that we give ourselves to as leaders is equipping others to be able to provide this kind of help. Spend a lot of time trying to help other people learn how to counsel, learn how other people be beneficial to others. So if this is something you need, please let us know. 
We're going to do our best. We're going to work hard to pair you up with a boundless leader or maybe even someone else in the congregation who can walk beside you for a season, who can help equip you in your area of struggle. And that's one reason God has given us these relationships in the body. And then beyond this, just your general friendships, okay? Your general friendships are a means of growth, tremendous growth. We're all the time influencing each other, even right here in Boundless. It's not if you're going to influence, it's what kind of influence you're going to be. You're going to be a good one or a bad one. Beyond these examples, beyond the discipling relationships, right here in Boundless is full of opportunity for rich friendships with each other. These friendships are where we learn to rejoice when others rejoice, weep when they weep, pray for people, bear burdens. Even the difficulties in our relationships, the difficulties in the life of our body, when people sin against you, these are divine opportunities for your growth. God's not wasting anything. Remember, he's designed everything to transform you. So even these moments that we would wish never happened, we get to learn to be more like Jesus. We will learn to be honest and articulate to others how their sin affected us. Rather than just sweeping it under the rug and secretly resenting them. We're going to learn how to humble ourselves and own it when we've sinned against another person. We're going to learn how to cherish reconciliation over being right or even fully understood. We'll learn the joy of forgiveness and the glory of overlooking an offense. We'll experience the sweet unity that comes from reconciliation and that deepened strength of relationships. When we reconcile in the church, it's like a broken bone that's set, mended, and strengthened. And it grows back stronger than before. You've probably experienced that in the, in the church whenever you've reconciled. And that is God's good, kind, sovereign providence. So sin is not the worst possible thing that could happen to you in the church. It's refusing to deal with your sin is the worst possible thing that could happen to you in the church. Because God intends it to be a transformative experience. All right, so we gotta, we got to wrap up here. There's so many other things I could talk about, uh, like serving in the church. Serving transforms you. Uh, church discipline is a, no, you don't want it, but it's a transformative experience. Uh, it was intended to be. There's so many things that go into body life and the life of a congregation that, that transforms. This is just a few ways. It's not exhaustive. But my point in this lesson is I want you to see that a lot is happening when you come to church. God has designed the church as the incubator, the greenhouse for our flourishing and growth. And He's using it to mature us. And so as Hebrews 10.25 says, we're in here. Let's not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, he says. But let's keep on encouraging each other as we gather together, and all the more as we see the day drawing near, the day of Christ's return. God intends to use the body for your transformation. It's the place his spirit dwells, and it's the place his truth is found. So again, this is just another brick in our in our building, our vision of how God is changing us. We're going to continue to get more and more practical as we go along. Next time, we're going to wrap up the, the means of growth section by looking at how God uses the world to grow us. Suffering and all the things that we experience in the world 
So I'm just going to go ahead and dismiss you because we're way out of time. And uh, 